from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The grass weathers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Can I share a secret with you? I have not washed my jeans that I'm wearing in three weeks. Now, I realize this cuts the heart of two very different gene theories. There are those of you who say you wear them once and they're dirty, they need to be washed. And there are those of you who say, you can wear them a long time before they're dirty. Do that, right? When I shared with you, I haven't washed my jeans in three weeks, what was your immediate thought? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. I want you to tell yourself. What was your immediate thought? Some of you thought, he's an eco-trailblazer, right? Most of you, I suspect, thought, Scott, you need to wash your jeans. Or that's funky. That's nasty. You got to do something here, right? I think it's funny. Oh, you want to know kind of the punchline to that? Like, I haven't washed my jeans in three weeks. You know how many times I've worn them in three weeks? Twice. That's why, okay? So don't think your pastor is up here like with funky clothes and things like that. That's not going to be the case. But I put you in a position 
to think, that's nasty, and kind of look down. It's so easy for us to be proudful, to be proud. You know, I started counting on Thursday how many times in my heart I was tempted to look down on another person. You know, I stopped counting at 14. That was at 2 p.m. The famous uh, Christian scholar, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, someone asked him what the three most important virtues are in the Christian life. And you know what he said? Humility, humility, and humility. This morning, we're looking at the sin of pride and try to unpack it. And the reason that we're looking, the reason that we've looked at all these seven deadly sins is not, is not to come away by saying, like, stop being proud. Because really and truly, that doesn't bring change. That can't actually change you just by hearing the law. And this, this is intuitive, right? You guys know this. The state of Oklahoma posts signs all over the place that says speed limit 65. Does that actually prevent you from going 65? No. Just because a law is there doesn't mean that we have the power to, to actually obey it. So what we want to do is we want to ask three questions. And the three, the three questions for today is, is this. How and why does pride work in us? How and why does pride work in us? What does pride produce in us? And then finally, how does the gospel address pride? Of all the sins that we've looked at, and if you were to look at most all Christian theologians from about 100 AD until the present, they will tell you that the greatest and the first sin is pride. More than lust, more than gluttony, more than sloth, more than any other thing that you could think of. The greatest and the first sin is pride. It's like if all the different types of sins were a worldwide pandemic, pride would be patient zero. Pride is patient zero. It's where all these other sins spur off and go their own ways from. Um, it was how Satan himself fell from grace. In Luke, 7, or Luke 10, Jesus, in, in the return of these 72 disciples, they're returning with joy and they're, they're telling Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he, his response to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And what he's referring to is Isaiah 14 and this is God speaking to Satan, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Through different passages in Scripture and through antiquity, we see that Satan fell. He was once a good angel, a right-hand angel, but he became proud. And he and a third of the angels were cast from heaven and became Satan and the demons. So it was the very first sin in all of the universe. The angels being created before anything was created here on earth. It was the very, very first sin. So how, how and why does pride work in us? How and why does pride work in us? And the answer comes from today's text, okay? And here it is. Like Eve... You and I, we are tempted to believe that God is withholding good from us, that he is withholding good from us, and we believe that we know better than God. We believe that he's withholding good, and we believe that we know better than God. Now, what do we see that in the text? So turn your eyes there to the text on page 9. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Okay. And he says to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So you can see here the serpent, Satan, he's setting up the lie to try to get Eve to believe the lie. Did God really say this? Are you sure? Well, then Eve's response in verses 2 and 3 You can see what she says to the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now she responds with what God had had said to her. Not exactly, though. If you look at chapter 2, God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. He just said, don't eat it. Maybe in a future conversation, God said, guys, it would be good if you didn't even touch the tree. Right? Because this is kind of like when you have younger kids and plates of cookies, right? You tell the kid not to eat the cookie. What does the kid do? They're not going to eat the cookie, but they're going to touch it and look at it and pick it up and put it down. So maybe it's possible that God did say, Adam, Eve, do not touch the tree. Look at how the serpent responds. In verse 4 through 6, the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. Okay, so, so that's a lie. That is directly contradicting what God has said. And then in verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you see here in verse 5, it's actually a mix of lie and truth. It's a little more subtle because they will surely die, and their eyes will be opened, but that will not make them like God. So one of the crafty, the way that, the way that Satan is deceptive here is that he gives lies, but they're mixed with just enough truth that it sounds legitimate. And so the woman, he, she saw, she considered what the serpent had said. She looked at the tree, saw that it was good for food, It was nice to look at, so she grabbed it, and she ate. 
And she said, here, Adam, you eat too. And he grabbed it and he ate. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about this passage, but for the emphasis today, let's look at what the woman did. She made a decision to eat the fruit based upon two assumptions. The first assumption is this. If the serpent is right, then God is not completely good to us because he's denying us this tree and any power that might come from it. If the serpent's right, then God is not actually completely good to us and he's denying us any power or anything that might come from that. Now that assumption has at its root another assumption. I know better than God. In this decision that I have to eat of this tree, I am, the serpent, let's say, is tempting me that maybe God's not good. I'm not supposed to eat this tree. I've got all these other trees. The serpent says, though, that this tree in the middle of the garden, if I eat it, I'm going to die. And the serpent says, no, you will be like God. Is God good? If he were really good, he would give me everything. And then the second assumption, she acts on the first assumption because she assumes deep down, I think God is wrong in this, and I think I'm right. I know better than God on this decision. That's ultimately what pride is, friends. Pride is ultimately, I know better than God. So we can look at a lot of examples about this. And it kind of comes in this form. I see what God has said about X, whatever it is, but I don't believe that. He's wrong. Okay. I see what God has said about how I'm supposed to handle my money. That I'm supposed to be generous. That I'm supposed to be a cheerful giver. Jesus says more about money than most subjects. But I don't believe that. I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to gamble it. I'm going to do whatever else. I believe what I believe. I don't really care what he believes. Okay, I see what God has said about my sexuality, but I really don't believe that. He's wrong. I see what God has said about hospitality. He wants Christians to be hospitable people. But you know what? I don't really like people invading my space. I don't know that he's right. Or if he is right, I don't really care. I see what, his, what God has said about, about work. But I don't want to do it. We're supposed to work hard as unto the Lord. Work is to be able to provide for our families, whether they're one-person families or many-person families. And you know what? I just don't want to, I really don't want to do it. Or I see it, but I don't believe that. Um, or even this, you know, I see what God has said about the purpose of life, but I don't believe that he's wrong. This is the most common one. The purpose, 
If you get from the world, the purpose of your life is to be happy. I wonder if that's not very short-sighted. God said that the purpose of this life is to glorify him and to enjoy him. So if that's the case, shouldn't we be, like, in our lives, wondering, how can I do that? How can I fulfill this purpose of life that God has called me to? And for some of us, it's either, one of two things, it's either, I flat out don't believe that. I think God is wrong. Or we kind of back it up and say, well, you know, Scriptures were written kind of by, by different people, and it was just men, and I don't really, you know, I don't really know. We can't really know, and so that gets me off the hook. Or we just say, yeah, I see what the Bible says, but I just flat out disagree. I just flat out disagree, and I'm going to do my own thing. So that kind of looks like, you can call these like, these are examples of of the first part of the great commandment. How can I love God? How can I love God with my money, with my sexuality, with my work, with, with my purpose in life? But pride works more than just on the vertical scale between you and God. It also works, and we see this most commonly, on the horizontal scale. Not only in how we interact with God, but how we interact with others. So Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. I know that God has told me to love my neighbor, but in particular cases, I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that he's wrong. That's what pride says. Pride says, I know what God has said about loving my neighbors, but in this case or that case or the other, it's wrong. Let's, let's give some examples. Most of the examples are kind of in this, in this big category of what we call, res- <laughs> what the King James called respecters of persons. That is, do you treat people differently based on particular reasons? Do you look down on some people? Let's start with the first. Rich and poor. If you're wealthy, do you look down upon those who do not have much money? If you don't have much money, do you look down upon those whom the Lord has blessed who do have a bunch of money or wealth? I see this a lot kind of in the schooling community. Like in Trinity, we've got folks who homeschool, folks who private school, folks who public school, Folks who online school, I mean, there's so many different options. If you homeschool, do you look down on people who are in public schools? If you're private school, do you look down on people who are homeschooled? Um, how you dress, where you shop. We're in Owasso. There's, there's a few grocery stores, right? If you shop at Sprouts, Do you look down on those who shop at Walmart? Where you live, where you work? 
If you have a white-collar job, do you look down upon people, even in the congregation, who have struggled with blue-collar jobs? How much you weigh? If you're thin, do you look down on people who weigh a lot more than you do? What does that look like? Because, well, if they just spent the time to work out and eat right, they wouldn't be so heavy. Do you do that? If you're heavy, do you do the opposite? Do you say, look down on thin people and say, you know, if I had the money and all the extra time, I'd be able to work out and be thinner. You know, whether you're smart, if you have an advanced degree, do you look down on people who have a GED? You know, whether you're athletic, or not even that, let's just say if your kid's athletic, do you look down on other kids or other families because their kids aren't as athletic? You guys see that we could go on, we could do this all day. I don't want to do that because it's a beat down. You know where I see it too? It's very unique that I've seen it in Oklahoma. <laughs> um, who you root for? OU fans. I know that you were always looking down at OSU fans. OSU fans? I know that you are looking down at TU fans. TU fans, I know you're not looking down on anyone because you're at the bottom. You can't. <laughs> Here's the truth. There's no biblical reason to look down on anyone for any reason. There is no biblical reason to look down on anyone for any reason. Jesus' best friends were prostitutes and tax collectors. Our Savior's best friends were whores and thieves. And you know what he did? He treated them exactly the same as he treated his disciples and everyone else. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Here's, here's what makes pride insidious. Pride is like bad breath. Pride is like bad breath. The only person who doesn't know you have it is you. So if I don't give examples here, unless your spouse or a friend gives you examples, you are blind to these areas in which you are proud. And I'm not talking about you guys understand, we're not talking about big shows of pride. Oh, public school person, you're sending your public school child to the godless heathens when we can homeschool. 
and do what God actually wants. No, not that. It's a little, you guys don't know it. It's the little things in your heart. He didn't get that assignment done. He's just lazy. This appears, this appears all the time in our hearts because we're fallen. So that's how, that's how and why like, pride actually works in us. What does it produce in us? Pride produces actually more pride, which actually produces utter hostility toward God. Because a proud person, in all of these different instances, whether they be on the horizontal with other people or on the vertical, they are saying, I know better than God. I know better how to treat you than God. That's why I look down on you. And ultimately, that results in utter hostility toward God. And you know what? Even the Romans in Jesus' day and before realized how how pride worked. I mean, complete heathens. But they still realized how dangerous pride was. There was something called the Roman triumph. Have you guys ever heard of this? A general goes and conquers in a war and comes back and they have a parade and behind him on the chariot, a slave carries above him a golden crown as he rides through the streets and people cheer. And the slave whispers in his ear, you are but mortal. In a place where there were gods upon gods, this polytheistic religion, and where kings, the Caesars, were hailed as gods, they realized the importance of having a slave behind a general saying, you are but mortal. More than any other sin, Pride separates us from the life of God and life with each other. Why? Why is that the case? Because pride is always competitive. It, is all, it always enjoys power and status, and it always fosters hostility. It's always competitive. It always enjoys power, and it always fosters hostility. And it fosters hostility, friends, not only between you and God, but you and others. A truly proud person doesn't have many friends, if any. So you and I are in this boat, and you can be proud at a very young age. And just as I've said a number of examples, I know that they resonate with you. So the final question is this. How does the gospel address our pride? How does the gospel address my pride? The greatest gospel example of this is Jesus himself. Although Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who had always existed as the Son of God, who, I mean, God can say something and it just happens. He can create. He can destroy everything. 
This Jesus who had all power and status, he gave that up for you. Here is what the scripture says from Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul encourages us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The creator of all things chose to become a creature. Not to be worshipped as a creature, but to suffer as a creature, to die in a terrible way as a creature. And he did that for you. What that shows us I believe is a very strange picture on who God is. If anyone in the whole universe could be proud, it would be God. Because God can do everything. He can do everything. But we don't see that as a quality in him. Rather, we see the opposite quality, the virtue. In God, we see humility. And it's that humility that sent Jesus to the cross. And so what that means then applied to us is this, that God hates the proud. He hates pride, but he loves and exalts the humble. He loves and exalts the humble. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He told the little children who children were not to be seen or heard at the time, hey, let them come to me. He called out fishermen. Fishermen didn't have a high status. Come on, follow me. In Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others proudly with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Where are you in that story? Are you the Pharisee? Jesus, I thank you that I'm not like an OSU fan. Jesus, I thank you that I'm not like a person who has to shop at Walmart. Jesus, I thank you that I'm not a person who has to live in North Tulsa. Jesus, I thank you that the list goes on and on. Or when you approach him, you say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. The answer to pride 
is to bow to our king, to beat our breasts, and to believe what he has said. So that wraps up our series. And I realize that through, through these last four weeks, there's been a lot of examples of sin, and I encourage you to come for the next 10 weeks as we look more and more at how grace actually does change everything. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, for your word. Um, it, is a, it is a glorious thing that our king has humbled himself so that sinners might be saved, that Jesus took on flesh and soul just like us in order to suffer and to die that he might redeem us. Father, keep us from being proud people. Keep us from being proud people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.